welcome to Young and Sober, the podcast where we discuss what it means to get sober under the age of 30 and stay sober. If you're sober, sober curious, or just curious, you've come to the right place. Any discussion heard here is the experience of the individual and should not be taken as the stance of AA as a whole. Welcome to episode 35. This week we'll be chatting to Sarah, who's come to talk to us about being young, sober, and taking a step into action. Sarah, how are you? Good. I finished work early and had a bath, so all good. Amazing. Love that. So before we start, we've got a question from a listener. Beth says... I've just started my recovery journey and I feel very anxious about sharing in meetings. I'm worried about talking about triggering things without psychological support and safety. Is this something that concerns you and how did you get past it? Um, Sarah, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I um, I had to learn the hard way. It didn't, well, my past did concern me and, and, and like for other people to hear what I had done in my past concerned me early on because you know I came in and and I didn't think that anyone had done what I had done and I thought people I mean I thought people would judge me I guess I've learned that there isn't there isn't judgment in, in AA at all but I did chair it must have been I was almost a year or early just after a year and I did a chair and I, I decided to share something really really personal and <laughs> after I shared it I automatically was like oh no I should not have done that and I had all eyes on me and I just started crying I kept sharing the story but I kept crying and the whole way through the meeting I cried and I rang my sponsor afterwards and she was like don't worry it's okay it's a learning process and what I learned is that I can share a lot in AA but there are certain things that I don't have to share in a meeting and I can just keep it to me and my sponsor and close friends in AA. It, I do not have to be, like, I have to be honest, but I don't have to be open about everything. As long as my sponsor knows my journey and, and my resentments and, and everything that I've been through, that, that's all that matters. So my advice, my advice is if you feel vulnerable um, about sharing something, just share it with your sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I totally agree. I would also just add to that, you know, you talked about sharing certain things and not sharing others. It does say in the book, we shared in a general way. And I mean, that's not to say that you you don't, you're not able to share about specific things. But if you do just feel about generally kind of sharing in a general way, like I've been going through a bit of self-consciousness or whatever, like you don't need to share specifically. Um, and then, like you said, share specifically with your sponsor or with close friends. And then, Lastly, I struggled especially with the the psychological support and safety aspect of it. I have got some mental health diagnoses, which actually I didn't get until I came into recovery. And my sponsor especially, you know, there were certain things that she would say like, look, do you know what? I'm not a professional. I'm not equipped to deal with this certain part of what's going on for you. I would suggest you go and see a therapist or go and see a counsellor. And again, in the book, it does say that, you know, sometimes we need to seek outside help and that's also okay. So if there's something that's really kind of disturbing you or, you know, something that people in AA aren't equipped to support you with, yeah, I, w- I would suggest seeking outside help. You know, AA is there to, to stop us drinking and to also support us with our thinking, but it's not, you know, then we're not medical professionals. And if there is other stuff to, to go with, then 
do so and also if anyone's talking to you like they are a medical professional um you know I've had certain people do things like tell me to stop taking my antidepressants no I will listen to a doctor on that and yeah xyz Dan what's your experience been about that yeah so I think actually Sarah and I were having a conversation over text message during a zoom meeting which we probably weren't supposed to have recently around the subject. And it's something I think that everybody learns when they come into AA, what they're comfortable sharing with in what meeting context. So, you know, how I share about the same event at a men's meeting might be different than how I share at a mixed meeting, which may be different from how I share at a young person's meeting to which may be different to fellowship and to my sponsor and to my close friends. And, you know, when I first came into the rooms, that that honesty. I don't know if you ever watched the show Lie to Me, but there's a guy that yes, in that show, I love that show. <laughs> he, he takes like a pledge for like absolute honesty and it's really awkward. And sometimes people come into AA and they feel that they have to honestly and openly share every detail in a chair or in a share back. And it's something I think when Sarah and I were talking about it, we were reflecting with time in the rooms, how that changes. So to the listener who wrote in, I think, it's something that you'll grow more comfortable with and you'll learn what you're comfortable sharing with. The way I share about the same experience when I first came into the rooms to how I talk about it now is drastically different, right? Like I, I'll talk about just crossing moral lines or doing something that, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to do. That people can draw whatever conclusion that means. They, I'm just relating to a general action in that. When I first came in, I wanted to tell you exactly what I did because I wanted you to know how screwed up I was and stuff like that. And so I think being concerned about it, it's fine. AA is a, a safe place, but I think you should, you know, only share what you're comfortable with and, you know, build a network in AA that you trust people so that you can share, you know, openly with the right people. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you both well, so much. There was one, there was one more thing actually that you just reminded me of Dan. Um, like when people share so openly and so it like raw for example sexual assault you know that doesn't mean that I have to then share back about my experience if I'm not comfortable just because someone else is really really open doesn't mean that I have to be that open <laughs> you know it's yeah don't push yourself to share you know yeah, that's a really, really, really good point because it does, you know, it does happen. Yeah, thank you for that question. Okay, so Sarah, would you like to just give us a little intro to you? So how old you were when you came in, how long you've been sober and just a brief kind of intro to what brought you into recovery? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I my sobriety date is the... 16th of June 2014. I came in at 21. I actually came in in the April, but I had a relapse and I, I came back straight away. Luckily, thank God, because that does not always happen. Yeah, so I've been sober, sober for just over seven years. I came in because it's it, because I have addiction on both sides of my family and it got to the point where I was just isolating in my room, I was drinking alone in my room. I was hiding bottles in my wardrobe and that didn't seem like odd behavior at the time. It just didn't seem like odd behavior. Like none of my behavior seemed odd to me. Now that I look at it, it was really strange. I'm surprised I didn't notice it. But yeah, I was drinking alone and 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 I was around my uncle who who's now colic and he has wet brain and he's in 
in a, a home he's he's quite young as well but he I was around him when I was younger and the way he spoke to his mum wasn't wasn't the way you'd speak to your mum and I went into the living room and I was like give me I spoke to my mum the way he spoke to his and I was like oh my gosh I don't want to turn into an alcoholic and I asked for help that night and when I come into recovery um, and I went to an AA meeting I realised I already was an alcoholic and I felt a lot of shame because I was so young and I thought it was so unfair that I can't drink like everyone else and yeah I was just very angry at the start of my recovery I was very angry yeah I think that was my main emotion was just anger at the start and and frustration and not knowing what to do I think it was really good that I got got a sponsor two weeks into it she's still my sponsor today Dan knows her (laughs) um she works the program so well and she's shown me the way that that I should be working my program I don't always work it you know not always the best of my abilities either but yeah my my head my head at the beginning my head was just I was in pain and like I said before I was just ashamed of everything that I had done I thought I was this terrible person and it was a relief when I finally opened my mouth and said, hi, I'm Sarah, I'm an alcoholic. It was a relief. It took me a couple of weeks to say it. I just needed somewhere to belong and I, I hadn't belonged anywhere in a very long time because I isolated myself. But yeah, I found I found my home and it's in AA and I've made a lot of friendships. You know, my world was very small when I came into AA. I had a job that I hated. I still work in the same industry, but, <laughs> but I just hated it. Um, yeah, I had no friends anymore because I had isolated and I had, I was I was too dangerous to take out. They had to look after me. And then as uh, as my journey, as I went on in my journey in, in recovery, my world opened up a lot more. But what I've learned is that I need to 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 stay really close within AA. Otherwise, things start crumbling down and my world gets smaller again. Amazing. Thank you so much. So we will be talking about chapter six in the big book, which is called Interaction. Now, just for the listeners, this chapter of the book does talk quite a lot about step five. And as you know, each month we do one episode on a step. So we're not going to talk specifically about step five, just like last week, we didn't really talk about step four because we'd already covered it. But there's still so much in here that we can talk about loads and loads and loads. And so that's what we will be chatting about so the first bit that I would like to draw attention to is just like they talked about the actor in the last episode they talk about the actor here as well and it says more than most people the alcoholic leads a double life he's very much the actor to the outer world he presents his stage character and this is the one he likes his fellows to see he wants to enjoy a certain reputation but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it and I mean, I know I certainly identified with this. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I am. Um, remi- do you know what that reminded me of? Me at school, I became like it, what, like the class clown, I guess you could say. Like everyone thought it was funny. I made jokes, they laughed. But inside, like I went on antidepressants at 15, you know. I was not, not I didn't feel funny. In, I mean, I felt funny, but not funny, ha-ha. You know, I was I was deeply depressed and I was crumbling inside. And to to everyone else, you know, I was just funny, happy-go-lucky girl, and that was not me. But I I 
I felt like it would be better that people saw this happy person than, than the truth. And the truth was that I was so, so sad inside. And that was, that was at 14, 15, you yeah. know? Yeah, I so relate to that. I, I think like, so the, the teachers at school thought I was a good girl because in class and when I was talking to them, I was always like, I, was, I knew how to behave, you know, like I knew how to behave. And the split life for me was like at school, I was kind of focused on school, but also like, I don't know, like I was just quite well behaved. And then at home, I was an absolute monster. I was a monster. Like my brother and sister, I'm the oldest, and they were terrified of me because I would like physically hurt them a lot and just be so abusive. And what I now know is that I was just really, really fearful and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I just lashed out. But I remember like at school thinking like, oh, okay, home's my safe place. And then going home and home not being a safe place. And so kind of just having these, these like it says, double lives, like school was one thing and then home was another. Yeah, what about your life early on, Dan? Yeah, so I am terrible to ask about that period of my life because I don't remember I so home was like a really good life for me like I had a very good home life so that was never the problem and and school like academically was a challenge because I have dyslexia and stuff but it wasn't there wasn't a lot there I was super deceptive to teachers around lying about doing work not actually because I didn't always not do the work it was more I would do the work but I would only write a paragraph and other kids would write a page or two and so I would get self-conscious about handing in that work so I would take it home and be like oh I'll just redo it tonight and then I would never do it and then I'd have like 10 missing assignments or something in class so as far as the the double life I think for me it really much more started when I was a bit older so more when my drinking started for me I started drinking later in life so I didn't start drinking until basically 18 so Right at that point, though, that double life starts in an unreal manner. So I think younger, younger stage, there were probably signs. I was very good at, at trying to mask into different groups and try to be socially accepted and stuff like that. But the double life for me, I resonates much more with a, a later stage than an earlier stage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when I, for me, started drinking more heavily, which probably for me was I started drinking at 14, but it got heavy probably more around like 17, 18. And I was at like parties and stuff, which was my thing, house parties. Like I didn't really go clubbing until much later, but I was definitely like the loudest center of attention, like talking to everyone, being really like social and like, I'm actually an introvert, but I didn't realize that until I got sober. And, but then at home, I would feel so much shame. And I remember like staying the night at my friend Sam's house because like that was where all our house parties were because his parents used to go away all the time and waking up the next morning and everyone like laughing about what had happened the night before and me being like, oh my God, yeah, that was so funny. And then leaving and being like, no. And like, that was what it was like for so much of my drinking, even like at uni, later in life, like, people would show me videos of what I've been doing and I would like laugh it off or they'd tell me stories about what I'd done and 
I would always pretend that I thought it was funny. And then when I went off and I was on my own, I just sat in fear and shame and misery about it. Sarah, what about you? Uh, later on in life, I was yeah. just thinking, I really didn't have to hide. <laughs> so I decided to, when my drinking took off, I was 18. It progressed really quickly from 18 to 21. But I decided that I would go off to a completely different country. Australia so I, I was surrounded by people that didn't know me so didn't really know what I was like before I didn't have to answer to friends that I already had or family like they couldn't see what I was doing so I guess yeah I did lie about things that I was doing um but it wasn't so much of a double life just because people didn't know me and and then I came I just kept moving around and I was never around the same people for very, very long. I went to Australia, Cyprus, Australia, Brighton. And then I came home. And a couple months after I came home, I, I found AA. So I didn't really have much of a, a double life when I turned 18. Yeah, I'm a terrible liar as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, I'm very glad about that. That's so funny. I also went abroad. I went to South Africa. I ran away from... Yeah, families and friends and everything. Not that I knew that was what I was doing at the time. I thought it was just like, I'm just living my life, being free spirit. Yeah. Um, and the job that I had in South Africa, so I was a, a volunteer coordinator in charge of like volunteers coming in, like training them up, taking them in to like teach and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And what would happen is the volunteers would only come for like a short amount of time. So they would come and I would be like, welcome. And I'd be like, fun, Alex. And I would take them out and like, we'd have a really good time. And then before the wheels came off, they would leave. And then the new lot would come in and I could do it all over again. And I literally did that on repeat for two and a half years. And similar to you, I moved home and I got sober. I think it was like three weeks later. Because when I came home, I was like, oh my God, I, like, I, I just can't. Like, I can't do this anymore. Like it's, you know, it's over. It's over. I'm done. What about you, Dan? With move, like either moving or moving groups or things, is that something you experience? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a geographical that actually resulted in me ending up in the rooms, like uh, running away to the UK at 26, basically, and then getting a job and kind of staying here and, and then getting sent to Dubai with that job. And, you know, the wheels kind of came off in Dubai, uh, finally for me. So, in many ways, actually, when I finally left where I, I had grown up, I was able to like ground out a lot faster and, and find that bottom. So I think I was much better at that double life and, you know, had more when I had my, my support network around me and everything, I had really good people in my life. And so in some ways it kept me from hitting that bottom faster. And then once I moved a bit further away, just bottomed out quite quickly. So I think absolutely though, like new people, I'm the type of person I was always better in, in a room full of strangers because I could, you know, break the ice and have that conversation with them. In fact, for me, my problem was always once I started drinking, when I met people, I was fine. I'm quite extroverted. And my problem would be my drinking would then get in the way of me actually progressing those interactions because I would meet some people like be having a good time few drinks later like nobody would want to be around me because what well, like I had just progressed so far past them so which I think kind of gets to that 
uh, the next paragraph that comes after the one we were just talking about, you know, it says the inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees coming to his senses. He is revolted at certain episodes. He vaguely remembers these memories are nightmares. He trembles to think someone might have observed him as fast as he can. He pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. And he is under constant fear and tension that make for more drinking. So I don't know, Sarah, if that paragraph, you like for me, I feel like that was the next stage of drinking. I started as the actor hiding it. And then I was just that constant shame of, but I couldn't get out of it. It was like a perpetual, I'm afraid. So I'm going to just keep doing this. Yeah, I was when I when I when I moved and made new new friends in, in them quotations friends. I seem to find the people that I I won't I won't call anyone else an addict, but they definitely they drank and used a lot like me. So first, it seemed it was, I, my using seemed normal because I surrounded myself with people that were the same. But yeah, it it was this shame. It was the shame and my mental, my mental health that brought brought me back home and to the realization that I just cannot keep going on like this. But if it was just the stupid things that I'd done and I didn't feel that shame, I reckon I'd still, I reckon I'd still be drinking, you know. But yeah, it was that shame, even when I had done nothing wrong the night before, you know. Like I'd ring friends up and be like, or people that I'd been out with and I'd be like, what happened? Like on my relapse, I rang the girl that I was drinking with um, the morning after and I was like, what did I do? She was like, nothing, you were fine. And I, and I still felt this shame, you know, it's terrible, but yeah. Yeah, I, I really relate to that sense of shame, even the nights that I didn't do anything, like the anxiety and I mean even what I know now like my physical reaction to alcohol like I was actually sharing about it in a meeting this morning whenever I drank red wine I would wake up in the middle of the night with my heart racing and like that physical symptom you know it's it's anxiety but also like that was my physical reaction to it was that I would basically think I was having a heart attack and I'd probably be having a panic attack but yeah even the nights when I hadn't necessarily behaved terribly I yeah would just wake up just terrified and feeling so 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 guilty and one of the things that you know the book goes on to talk about is is you know being accountable but also being honest and sharing honestly and we talked about that in the you know the response to the listener's question you know we get honest with kind of firstly our sponsors and then later on other people but what what did that you know when you when you heard that you were gonna have to get honest how did that make you feel? That made me <clears throat> cringe so hard. <laughs> I actually felt sick. Like I felt like there was a like a knot in my stomach. Honesty was not, like I was a terrible liar, but I was never honest about anything, you know? It just, and, and the thought that I would have to tell another human being everything about my life, it, it terrified me you know I drank on fear and to to not be able to use what I normally used to forget like to to not feel that fear 
you know that's terrifying you know but I think I was I think I surrendered I was like okay I have to like there's nothing else you know nothing else has worked my life is a complete pile of crap um my mind is a complete pile of crap yeah just terrifying I think it would be for anyone you know even the, the average person you know even the average person has done things that they don't want to tell other people about and, and luckily for, <laughs> luckily for them they don't have to <laughs> but we do we have to go to any lengths so <laughs> yeah so did you and I don't know well I have a guess because I I know you and your your sponsor so I I have a a theory how your sub five went because I think it was pretty pretty similar to mine so when you were doing that did you like there's a, a term in like the medical industry called like doorknob questions so people will tell a doctor that they've had headaches and they're you know a sore throat and then the doctor does the whole checkup and then when the doctor goes to reach the doorknob they're like oh and also I have a rash in an intimate area can you like look at that and because they they don't want to start with that right so when you were doing your step five did you try to get all the easy stuff out and leave the like tougher stuff for that kind of later or did you hit it head on I think because I had written it all down the the easier things to say were at the top because the easier things to write down were at the top. So they would have been the easier things to say. And I kind of went down in order and it's kind of, it was kind of like, I don't know whether the word is shocking when she just sat there and was like, yeah, okay. Like there was no, uh, there was no like, oh my God, get out of my house. I can't believe you're a revolting human being. <laughs> there was none of that. She was just like, yes, okay. And at the end, she's like, is there anything else? Or is that it? I was like, that's it. I think there was something else, but, you know, that was it. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, was that... Sorry, go on. No, I was just like, so was is that your first memory of kind of being honest in a post-recovery life, like, in, and having honesty try to be more of a thing? Or, like, because for me, it was kind of like a moment of honesty, but I still was not generally good at the whole honesty thing on like a daily basis so like it was a big step to get honest with somebody and and to be that revealing and and open but I don't think it had like worked its way into like my natural state yet I don't know I mean I did open up about some uh, I did open up about something before my step five with my sponsor it was something I felt like I needed to tell her before and it was just in a cafe outside and and she was fine and I, I think that that allowed me to breathe a little bit as well when it came to writing my step five writing step four and then and then saying it to her but yeah that allowed me to breathe just that slight bit of honesty about my past that was really shame I, I felt a lot of shame around and that allowed me to breathe and be like okay that's okay but yeah no I'm I wasn't very honest at the beginning <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember like having this huge wave of relief afterwards and also my experience was really similar to yours where like I was expecting my sponsor to be like oh my god I can't believe you did that like da -da -da. and she was just like yeah 
right and then there were a few things where she was like oh yeah I did that too and I was like what like I'm not the only one in the world who has done all these terrible things which is exactly the way my thinking was and like also thinking that they were the worst thing in the world and then there were some things that I'd done where she was kind of like you know people probably won't have even noticed that you did that, but you know that you did. So there were things that like I had owned up to that I probably could have left off, but I feel really grateful that I didn't. But yeah, I think I think for me, in answer to what you asked actually, Dan, is that I then had such this huge wave of relief that I then went, I think, too far the other way <laughs> when I shared way too honestly with way too many people who, you know, like we talked about in the response to Beth's question, like. I shared some things with people who probably were not the right people for me to share things with and then yeah just just kind of felt the repercussions of that you know either it became gossip or I just felt uncomfortable with people knowing those things about me because they weren't necessarily safe people so I think something that I've really learned you know as I've progressed through recovery is and something actually my sponsor says to me is like, not everyone has earned that part of your story or not everyone deserves that part of your story. And actually, funnily enough, that's been a huge part of my like dating experience because like what I used to do was like on the first day be like, I'm alcoholic, I've got these mental health issues, like just present all of my baggage. And surprise, surprise, a lot of the time those people weren't particularly interested in me after that. But that's not to say that you know, those things can't come out eventually, but to present this all to somebody that you've just met is probably not the best idea. Although talking about it with people in recovery is slightly different. Yeah, I was gonna say, especially if you're uh, meeting people that aren't used to that level of honesty and openness, right? It can be quite shocking. I think, and I know we're trying to tiptoe around step five and talk about just a general into action thing here. But one of the things that, that was true for me and maybe true for other people that it does talk about is like along with the sponsor i i did the uh because i'm i am religious and even though AA is not they literally say like those belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must and of course will want to go and do that and i, I had that part as well so i had like the dual of doing it with my sponsor but then also doing it in that setting. It was quite funny because I had never had an issue on the confession side. I had much bigger issue to somebody outside confession and the sponsorship side, because it's just the nature of it. So for me, it was nice to have both of those because it was really useful. Cause it just like, I think sometimes people tell their sponsor and then they don't tell anybody else and they, it, that can be fine. But from my experience, like having a few people that did know certain things and some people that were like, oh yeah, I had that experience too. And everything was useful, but the oversharing and like, especially I think in young, like in young person's meetings, there's a lot more oversharing than in other meetings. And I, I know the three of us do those quite frequently. And, you know, this is a, a podcast aimed at young, uh, those young and sober. And I think those there's a, an interesting mix in young person's meetings, like almost going back to Beth's question about like, because fellowship is more active and because everybody's younger and everybody knows each other and it's a lot friendlier, I find than like other meetings can be people get a lot more honest and early in, and then there is this, maybe they shouldn't have. So I think like that's where getting good sponsorship or having strong fellows that are of the same, you know, 
gender that you identify with can be really useful. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I, I, when there are new, new people sharing and they share some really personal things, I'm just like, I, I, I contact them afterwards just to make sure they're okay. Because I knew when I first come in and shared just too honestly <laughs> about things that afterwards my head would go and be like, why did I say that? When people judge you, just my head would go insane. And, and I just needed someone to be like, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. Everyone was thinking about what they were going to share. No one heard you apart from me but like, you know most people are just off thinking about what they're gonna say but yeah I definitely think you know I think young people's is great like I definitely needed it when I came in you know because I, I was able to relate a lot more but I do need the meetings with people that are older and have a lot of recovery or people that are older and went back out and and have come back years later I need to hear that as well because you know they say that they're just yet yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. That actually leads really nicely to um, the next part that I was going to refer to of this chapter, which says, you know, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness and to say it's easy to let up on the program of action and to rest on our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We're not cured of alcoholism. And just this bit that talks about, yeah, just, just not being complacent. How do you guys feel about that? Dan. <laughs> Uh, you want to uh, yeah so uh, <laughs> I'll start there thanks for that um for me it was so I, I literally gave it a chair last night I hit five years this week and so I was talking about that five-year period and I said like I like I have a lot of friends who came in who drifted away at this point and some of them are still sober but not in the rooms and others aren't and others I have no idea there's probably a few people who are dead that came in around when I did. There's one that I think I know is. So yeah, I, like that that drift away after you get some time and resting on your laurels. That's me, 100% right now. Like, but I know that. And so I'm trying to combat that and be honest about it and talk about it with people and, and do those things. We're not cured from alcoholism. It's a debate, are you recovered ever or not, right? I just know I'm not going to, it's a daily reprieve. Like it's a data time thing for me. I mean, I don't know, Sarah, where you fall. Well, I have got complacent many times in my recovery. Many, many times. And then I have had many breakdowns in meeting. You know, at five years, I um, I had a breakdown in a meeting and I just was like, I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's happening, you know? It was, it was scary. And I also think when you were young and you come in and although it's a day at time program, the realization is, is that I am an alcoholic and I will not, I will, I, I choose, I want to choose to continue this for the rest of my life. And if I die of natural causes, that is a very long time. And so of course, well, not of course, but, but I get complacent and I'm sure in the future I will get complacent again. And then I will have another breakdown. And it's all—it's just about learning. It's about learning and realizing I can't just do one thing in recovery. I have to do it all to stay well. And that's a struggle, struggle to, to be like, okay. Yeah, I also find that some days 
I go kind of into self-pity and I'm like, oh my God, why do I have to work so hard every day just to stay okay? Nobody else has to do this. Like, why do I have to? But I have also definitely in the past and recently had the experience of, yeah, kind of drifting back from from doing the things. And I definitely, I think I've spoken about uh, about it on here before where I see, you know, the suggestions as a buffer or as like layers between me and a drink and the more things I do the further the distance is between me between me and that drink this paragraph actually has one of my favorite quotes from the entire book it's on the background of my phone's lock screen thy will not mine be done and I have it on the back of my phone screen because it's a reminder of what I need to do on a daily basis. Handing it over is the biggest step of action I can take. The first action I should usually take. And it's the one that I don't do as often as I should. Uh, it was the quote that my sponsor drilled into me very early on because I was a self-will run riot person. What about the two of you? It's really interesting that you talk about phone backgrounds actually, because mine says, if nothing changes, nothing changes. <laughs> and it's kind of like you know Sarah when you were talking about like having a breakdown and then realizing you needed to go back to doing the work and having a breakdown and realizing you need to go back to doing the work like I'll find myself in a cycle of feeling rubbish and then also in reference to what Dan was saying I'll realize that I'm trying to do it on my own I'm trying to manage it on my own I'm not relying on the program I'm not relying on my higher power and then I start to feel awful it's almost like another rock bottom like we call it an emotional rock bottom don't we and when I hit that rock bottom I'm like oh right okay I need to make a change because nothing's going to change if I don't make a change my real question is Sarah do you have some cliche quote as your phone background or are you like normal and just have a picture <laughs> no mate I'm normal <laughs> I just have a picture <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I feel like yeah. I feel like left out now and so I feel like I, I need to get a picture do you know what my my sponsor drilled into me I mean she drilled in a couple things but she was like the best is yet to come just wait the best is yet to come that was one of the things that she kept saying to me I don't know I don't have I just have a picture so maybe I'm one of the normies background now maybe you should change it yeah exactly well <laughs> no I'll send you mine um <laughs> Um, my girlfriend will listen to this and now tell me that um i need to be normal and have a picture background because i get a lot of grief for having a, a, a text background and not a picture background yeah i love mine although mine's actually kind of like a picture slash quote which i quite like i made it myself on canva on that note we are gonna have to wrap up but um sarah do you just want to tell us something that you're grateful for today Oh, I'm grateful for so much. <laughs> I'm grateful that, that I get to go to university tomorrow and do a master's in something that I'm very passionate about. And so I'm grateful for that. Amazing. Dan? Yeah, I'm grateful that I know how I went to sleep last night and where I woke up this morning which is my cliche every time I'm asked this question answer. So next time I'll have to have a better answer. <laughs> I like that one. I am grateful for, so I'm going through some grief this week and I'm just so grateful for the recovery community. Like I have people 
that are helping me, you know, helping me through it and people that have dealt with grief and sobriety before me and have suggestions and, you know, are showing me the way, which is such a huge comfort because grief is so weird and so unpredictable and just really, really strange. So yeah, I'm really grateful for that today. Okay, thank you, Sarah and Dan, so much for joining us. And listeners, we will be back next week with another speaker and a topic. Please do like and subscribe. If you have any questions or feedback about what you've heard today, we would love to hear from you. So send us a message on Instagram at Young and Sober Podcast or email us at youngandsober@outlook.com. That is it for another episode. We are Young and Sober. Thank you.